Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Shivani. And I'm Melissa. And we are very excited to have Professor Paul Zach joining us here today. Professor Zach organized and administers the first doctoral program in neuroeconomics and is the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University. Zach also serves as professor of neurology at Loma Linda University Medical Center. He has degrees in mathematics and economics from San Diego State University, a PhD in economics from University of Pennsylvania, and postdoctoral training in neuroimaging from Harvard. <laughs> so definitely an extremely <laughs> accomplished person. Um, Undereducated, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem, obviously. Um, professor, thank you so much for being part of our show. Uh, so every single story has a beginning, and, and something we love to do here on the podcast is ask our interviewees what their beginning was. Um, so you were once sitting here in our position as a student, uh, trying to figure out what you were going to do and what you were going to pursue, um, sort of as your uh, higher um, post-education pursuit. Uh, what inspired you to really explore neuroeconomics? Frustration. Frustration. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so my undergraduate uh, focus was in economics and in mathematical biology, right. and somehow I thought I'd be a better economist if I understood some chemistry, some neuroscience, some mm. physics, and neuroscience just blew my mind as an undergraduate, best class I ever took, oh. and uh, went to graduate school and was trying to integrate biology into economics. Uh, this is in the late 80s, early 90s, mm. and it was just the third rail of economics. You couldn't touch it, you couldn't get involved. And then all my advisors left and I was left on my own and left my own devices. I sort of helped start this field, neuroeconomics. And I guess we should define it, right? This yeah, is no, absolutely. Measuring, for... Essentially measuring brain activity mm -hmm. while people make decisions. Right. So I think neuroeconomics brings the human back to the center of economics. And it also is very humble because I try not to use words mm -hmm. like irrational or um, confused. We, we just want to measure what the brain's doing while people make decisions and then try to understand those decisions and see if they are adaptive or non-adaptive. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, economics is supposed to be a social science. So Absolutely. the social part, I think, got, got bulldozed down <laughs> by uh, reams of mathematics. Mm -hmm. So we're bringing the social back to economics. That sounds fascinating. That was uh, one of the most fascinating parts of learning about neuroeconomics because you know, I was familiar with the term, but not terribly familiar. And as someone who considers themselves a bit scientifically challenged, that was fascinating to me, like the intersection of the social aspects, which you were talking about and science. Um, but I think it's not just economics. It's, it's anyone who's interested in humans has right. got to be interested in the brain at Absolutely. some level. So in, in, in our lab here at Claremont College University, we've had philosophy students, mm -hmm. we've had political scientists, we've had uh, religion students, we've had, um, of course, neuroscientists and biologists. So students of, of every stripe Discipline. can come in mm -hmm. yeah, and start looking at Gosh, this is, we had an English guy doing PhD in English for a while, spent time in our lab, and that wow. worked in his dissertation. He was interested in the decision points in the Mark Twain book, Huckleberry Finn. So throughout this book, as you remember, you yeah. read this in high school, <laughs> right? Huck has to decide whether he's going to turn in the slave or mm -hmm. not. And these decision points actually have real impact on the story, but also real impact about how we live our daily lives. He has these moral dilemmas. And wow. so how do we face moral dilemmas? Well, Twain gave us a... Uh, a kind of a template to mm -hmm. sort of understand how someone else might, you know, look at life and death issues. Absolutely. Um, anyway, so um, yeah, I think for philosophers, for government majors, for sociologists, 
It all, it all comes down for the brain, so yeah. why not use that as the central organizing mechanism to understand what the humans are doing? And the humans, I've discovered, are really interesting species. <laughs> That's so true. Crazy. I have a feeling this podcast is going to get start broad and then get really, really narrow, because I want to ask you about the moral molecule. You're talking about how morality plays a role in our decision-making, and you can figure it out in the brain. It seems like you've identified oxytocin as the moral molecule. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, so oxytocin is a chemical that our mm. brains make right. that until we started doing research on this around 2001 was only known in women to facilitate birth and breastfeeding and to release by both sexes during sex. So re- reproductive hormone. Mm-hmm. And um, yet there was a very rich animal literature suggesting that um, the brain's use of oxytocin was a signaling molecule for familiarity of others or um, safety with others, so it, mostly in rodents. So, so um, two rodents meet in a burrow. It's dark, so they do this by smell. So, oh, mm-hmm. Shivani, right? Shivani, yeah. Shivani. So Shivani, I smell her. She seems nice, so we can now <laughs> affiliate. We can huddle up and stay warm and safe. <laughs> and so I said, Gosh, I'm really interested in in human positive social behaviors. Mm-hmm. Why we trust each other, and actually trust. I showed in earlier work was among the strongest factors economists have ever found to understand why countries are rich or poor. So right. high-trust countries are richer countries because the there's experiment. more social interactions. Mm-hmm. So now the question is, what's the mechanism? What, what causes that? And so I thought, oh, here's an interesting signaling molecule in rodents. Gosh, I'll just measure that in humans. Well, blah, 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 it's not so easy, right? So I've got to get into your brain. And so we developed a number of protocols that allow us to measure the acute response of oxytocin to social interactions. Mm-hmm. And over the course of um, 10 years and a couple of million dollars worth of experiments, um, we show that oxytocin functions as what I call a moral molecule. It motivates positive social behaviors. Mm-hmm. It's exactly those behaviors that almost every tradition calls moral. So it's basically, right. if you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. Mm-hmm. So it's like the biological basis for the golden rule. right? So you're nice to me, I release oxytocin, that motivates me to be nice to you. Right. So that allows us to have this new window into uh, human nature. <laughs> Should we keep going? Or yeah, that's okay. going. New window into human nature, which is actually why people are good and evil, which is a question, of course, humans have struggled with for as long as there have been humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so we spend a lot of time working on what promotes oxytocin release, what inhibits oxytocin release. We've studied everybody from psychopaths in prison to psychiatric patients to uh, indigenous people living in the rainforest of Papua mm-hmm. New Guinea. So it seems to be a universal and evolutionarily old mechanism that most of the time tells us why humans behave nice to each other, even right. complete strangers. And we should say that bad behavior gets all the news <laughs> because it's so outstanding, right? Mm-hmm. Someone's killed, someone's injured. Bad behavior is not the norm, actually. As you know, violence has decreased in the last 500 years among humans um, almost to zero. It's, it's extraordinarily rare and almost everywhere in the world to have violence affect your life. Mm-hmm. Some areas are extremely violent, so right. let's not discount those. But um, if you are nurtured as a child, if you don't get a really bad genetic draw, if you're in, embedded in a community that cares about other people, this system is in the brain that uses oxytocin is very active, right. makes us more empathic. And when I feel pain from you, I'm less likely to inflict pain on you because I'll feel that pain. Mm-hmm. And if I bring you joy, I get to share that joy. So it's a real interesting molecule. It's a richer story than I've told you, of course, <laughs> interacts with lots of other things in the brain. And that's what we did, you know, years and years of research mm-hmm. on this. But yeah, so it's, it's a very interesting molecule that basically was unstudied in humans. 
And uh, yeah, right here in Claremont, right all these fundamental discoveries. Absolutely. Go figure. <laughs> so you mentioned nurturing, um, and I was listening to your TED Talk, which was amazing, Thank by you. the way. Um, and one of the most fascinating things to me was, it was sort of the tone that I heard of the nature versus nurture debate. Because um, you mentioned nurturing in terms of oxytocin, being able to really elevate your levels, um, but also for, I think it was, you mentioned sexual assault victims. Um, you also found very depleted levels of oxytocin. So does nature play a part in that? Or is it really things that happen you know, during your lifetime that uh, creates the fluid scale? Good question. It's a great question. And this allows us to bring economics back in. So um, turns out that every biological system, including the brain, is also an economic system. Mm. That is, the brain has scarce resources, which it seeks to deploy efficiently as efficiently as possible. It's never perfectly optimal because that takes too much energy and your brain is energy uh, dependent organ. It takes a lot of energy to run it. So it wants to just idle most of the time. That's why we just have habits and we do, you know, stuff that without thinking about it. Um, so in all, almost every brain system, with the exception of things like breathing and heart rate that are just hardwired, everything else is soft wired. Mm -hmm. And uh, for the oxytocin social behavior system, if you are not cared for or nurtured when you're young, even though your genes may cause you to release oxytocin when you're little, when you're getting hugged by mom or bathed or caressed, that system is not developed through nurturing. It's not going to function well as an adult, mm -hmm. right? Now, it's a very evolutionarily old system, so what we found is mm -hmm. it's pretty highly protected. So you really need to abuse, neglect, uh, inhibit a, a lot of violence on, on uh, children before this system really shuts down, but yeah, you can shut it down. And so you can create what looks like psychopaths. So psychopaths mostly have a genetic component because you see them as very young children torturing animals, doing bad things. But there's also generally a trauma mm -hmm. involved. So without the genes, a little trauma, generally gonna be okay. Bad genes and really good nurturing, you generally can overcome that. Mm -hmm. Some genetic predisposition and some trauma in your life, and that's a, a, unfortunately a recipe for certainly impaired social behaviors mm -hmm. um, so so what do we do so it turns out the system is dynamic mm -hmm. so there are interventions that have been based on my research and certainly pharmacologic interventions that can help people develop uh, more acute social skills um, people with autism for example or social anxiety disorder so there are ways to actually train the system mm -hmm. to engage more to make us more comfortable around others to make us more empathic um, so I think one of the great evolutionary advances of the human race is that not only can we have, we have these nice big brains that allow us to project ourselves into other worlds and other people's shoes, we can actually feel what they feel. We, we do this in movies all the time, right? You go to a movie and the boy gets the girl at the end and we're crying, oh my God, you know, why are you doing that? It's a fake story, you're in a theater, right? It's, but we project ourselves. If the story's good enough, we do that. So we do that when we meet other people as well and oxytocin is part of that projection system. So again, you can help develop the system, mm -hmm. it's dynamic, or you can impair it. And um, in my book, The Moral Molecule, I talk about the experiments I run on myself to try to be a more empathic, a more mm -hmm. warm yeah. feeling person. And sample size one, yeah, actually it works. <laughs> and so th there's a downside with feeling other people's pain more. So for example, I have a daughter who's 16, 
Hopefully she'll get to Claremont McKenna. We'll Hopefully see. We have her she here. gets in. And she wanted me to take her to see Fault in Our Stars. This this Oh, the John gosh. Green. Yeah. Yes, yeah. which <laughs> I saw the movie trailer and I said, Honey, I'm glad to take you and your friends, but you know I can't sit in the movie because I am a terrible movie crier now. Oh, no. Before all I wanted to do is watch, you know, Schwarzenegger movies and things blowing up. Uh -huh. And now if like the least little emotional thing happens, I'm embarrassing. So <laughs> You know, upsides and downsides, trade-offs, like we know from economics. Uh -huh. So I, I actually had a question at that end because, um, so you are referred to as Dr. Love. Um, Where did that come from? <laughs> you, I got, I got outed as Dr. Love. Uh, you got outed as yeah. Dr. Love. And you uh, are a big believer in this eight hug per day um, sort of formula in order to really keep your oxytocin levels balanced. My question is, you know, you mentioned trauma victims and people who've just been uh, neglected in general is there a have you found through your own studies a certain recovery time for oxytocin levels um mm -hmm. for someone who has suffered this trauma who has is genetically predisposed to low levels is there sort of a sphere of time that they can expect if they were to you know start being nurtured or really adopt this lifestyle mm -hmm. to regain those levels that's a great question so we really don't know so this okay. work is really in its infancy um but we have shown in, in you know, well-designed control experiments that touch releases oxytocin. Mm -hmm. And so almost as a self-experiment, um, I started, well, what would happen if I didn't shake hands? I just hugged people. So we hugged when I came we in. Did. I started hugging everybody. And because I know it releases oxytocin, it's like a brain hack. So for the listeners, if you want to connect better to people around you, give them a hug, even complete strangers. You can just, look, what did I say? I say, look, I hug everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so again, as long as you're not creepy about it. If creepy <laughs> hugs, that's just bad and that's stressful. We and do no not one, advocate no one for wants creepy that. No creepy hugs. No creepy hugs. Um, so actually it's a very effective way. So I think it's this really applied science. It's mm -hmm. really using neuroscience to improve your life. So we're going to sit and talk for 45 minutes. If we release oxytocin, we're going to connect to each other better. That's going to result in a better podcast. It'll be more interesting to hear. So why not do that, mm -hmm. right? doesn't hurt anybody. It's good for them. Um, so oxytocin reduces, reduces anxiety. Uh, it um, can improve health in a variety of ways that reducing stress does. We know that social support is really essential to um, have a fulfilled life, to recover from uh, injury. So we're social creatures. We should just embrace that. We need the other humans. We say we don't care what the other humans think or say, but we actually do. Um, so why don't we just embrace it and really work on building those social ties. Absolutely. So, so again, I'm an introvert. So, you know, I'm oh, happy to spend you? 12 hours in my lab not talking to anybody, but I've made it a real point to invest in social relationships, to invest building time with other people. Um, so I recently turned 50 and I had four surprise birthday parties. That's amazing. When have you ever had four birthday parties in your no. life, right? So that I think that's just the result of really working hard and understanding that as a social creature, probably a human, who knows, <laughs> I probably need social relationships. So right. I've got to actually take time to go to dinner with people, to hang out. Mm -hmm. um, even though I'm back in my head, I want to be, I want to be in my lab working. <laughs> so. Wow, that's validation. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about like the social aspect of this. You've traveled all over the world um, doing this research. I mean, if, if you're right, like this should be completely cross-cultural. Is that kind of what you've seen right. in your travels? Or are there any interesting stories you have to share with us that maybe oh my gosh. would affirm what you've studied? <laughs> I've been everywhere, man. Yeah, uh, you have. So we, um, I mean, I talk at the Athenaeum today about work we've done within organizations. You guys are too young, but you've read that some places when you work suck the life out of you, right? right? So. Mm -hmm. Um, we're working very hard to help organizations be places where people can really flourish, they're engaged, they're having fun. Work's still hard, I'm not saying it's not hard, but it can be hard as a team, it can be 
uh, a challenge that you're recognized for. So we've done a lot of work in organizations. So I think I'll, unless you want me to go that direction, I'll hold off on that. But in terms of, you know, the have experiments that really changed my life, just running them, mm-hmm. um, I think Papua New Guinea probably was the most outstanding one. So um, as I was getting ready to finish the moral molecule, you know, all the studies we had done had been in Western Europe and the U.S. Easy to run studies there. Mm-hmm. People have laboratories, and we did a lot of field studies. We've been in, uh, gosh, we've been in uh, you know, businesses, we've been in churches, we've been in governments, we've been in schools. I mean, we just we've gone every place the humans are, but we hadn't gone to the Stone Age. So the question is, how do you go to the Stone Age? What is the most isolated place on the planet? And if you poke around a little bit, it's really Papua New Guinea. So this is a volcanic island. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, north of Australia, it has uh, it's it's a rainforest. There are 800 distinct languages because you have these little isolated tribes, and so it took me two years to work out permissions and the ability to go there with an anthropologist and work with a tribe. Uh, so this tribe, deep in the rainforest, had never been to a doctor or dentist before. Uh, we came in. There's no running water, no electricity. Uh, they're vegetarians. Uh, so it very is, much hunters and gatherers, though. Very much. They're subsistence wow. farmers. And so, uh, with permission, I came and I brought generators and blood tubes and centrifuges and liquid nitrogen. And we set up a medical hut in the middle of the rainforest. And we had these individuals uh, perform a ritual that their ancestors have done for thousands of years um, that kind of binds them to their community. And we showed that during this ritual that they normally do, not my experiment, right? Mm-hmm. Just what do you guys normally do? Mm-hmm that in fact they released oxytocin during this and they felt connected to their community, they talked about their ancestors. So if it works in the Stone Age, if it works in Papua New Guinea. So what happened was, I mean that's your answer, it was I was, this, this was the, uh, you, you can Google this later, there's an old saying from World War II called FUBAR. This is a FUBAR experiment, so you can guess what the F stands for. So basically I couldn't do anything for a couple of days and you're isolated, I mean you're really isolated, you're way out there. And I just had to hang out in this community and I was, go into their homes, they have these sacred huts, and they have a lot of spare time. They work about an hour a day to generate enough food. They don't grow extra food because they're way far from markets. There's just no way to get it into a market. Um, So there's some indigenous drugs that they enjoy doing. Um, So some people take drugs because they got spare time. They socialize a lot. And they just, I just hung out with them. And within like a day, I'm like a member of the community. I'm hanging out, playing with the kids. The chief has a fifth grade education. Um, he's lovely. He's just an amazing guy. He speaks a little English. Mm-hmm. Anyway, long story short, we finished the experiment. Finally, we had to fly in more liquid nitrogen from Japan. I mean, the whole thing was just was <laughs> horrendously bad. And I got stuck in customs for three hours at LAX with blood samples that oh, are like, wow. these are not going to last. I need to get up to my lab. Okay. Anyway, long story short, we're getting ready to go. And the chief of, of my village now, it's my village, mm-hmm. I've been adopted, says, you need to wait. Now we have a crew. We went with a film crew. Uh, we had security. We had drivers. It's not a safe license. Okay. The chief says, "Sit down." You sit down. He said, "We have gifts for you." Oh. So he calls me up, and they have this sort of clearing in the rainforest. It just—it's mud, just mud, and people are wearing like little loincloths. Uh-huh. And this is like you know, this is the rainforest. <laughs> so he calls me up, and he said, "It's very important that people in our village can provide for their people." We want to make sure you can provide for your people. So we have this package. Now this is wrapped in like Christmas paper that's been taped back together. So it's been reused. And I look inside and there's a hand spade, which is what they use mm-hmm. to till their pots. And I, you know, I almost broke down crying. I'm like, these people have literally they have nothing. 
they they just grow food and have a couple of pigs and that's all and yet they gave me a gift like that i can't imagine a better description of love for another human being it was just so lovely and they gave food and little knitted bags to everyone in the whole crew who are you know they're they're never going to see them again so it's that kind of sort of moral molecule like they really invested in a relationship and um it 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 was just an amazing experience so yeah life-changing and and actually that's the opening of the work we're doing in organizations Mm -hmm. which is humans have been doing organizations since we've had humans and so once you're in a new place you fit in you just say oh here's my new organization now I'm a sort of honorary tribe member of my tribe called the Malkins. So I'm just an honorary Malkin and he's the chief and he tells me what to do and that's that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, that, that's amazing. Um, so sort of, you, you mentioned organizations and I think that's sort of taking it to a macro scale. Um, but some of the most interesting things that I found about your research is that you actually received DARPA funding. Um, so the U.S. government, unless that yeah the u.s government is basically asking you in terms of for your research how they can avoid military conflict or how they can Mm -hmm. lessen their ties with military conflict um and someone who's extremely interested in defense uh could you speak more to that sure we've done a lot of work with darpa with the u.s intelligence Mm -hmm. community and uh let's focus on the darpa work um that had a really noble goal which was could we teach soldiers to use words rather than weapons wow. to reduce conflict? Mm-hmm. So there are some bad guys in somewhere in a village in Afghanistan. You can come in with guns pointing or guns shooting and try to find that bad person. Or you can come in to the village elder and say, you have family. I have a family back home. I'm trying to keep them safe. You're trying to keep them safe. We've heard there might be a Taliban guy here. Mm-hmm. If it's possible, could you direct us to where this person is? Because I think it's not safe for you or mm-hmm. your village. Right, so how do we do that effectively? So we spent a, a number of years um, studying the neurobiology of persuasion. So how do we use language and stories so that we can um, induce people to cooperate with us voluntarily? I mean, there's, there's no brainwashing. I don't know how to brainwash people. I wish right. I did. <laughs> um, so, so we actually have a big research program on influence and persuasion. And honestly, every social interaction involves some degree of persuasion, mm-hmm. right? I want you to like me. I want you to talk to me. I want... So we have big brains. You can decide if you want to like me or not. And, but how do we do that? And it turns out that stories are about the most effective way to assess, sorry, to influence someone to see your point of view. Mm-hmm. And when they see your point of view, then you might be able to encourage them to take an action that you'd like them to take. Mm-hmm. So we developed a methodology using neuroscience to quantify how effective communications are. And so for this work, uh, a lot of DARPA funding, we still do work with the intelligence community. And we've actually spun out a company called Zestex Labs that does this work now for commercial clients and companies you've heard of, Facebook, Intel, Mm -hmm. AT&T recently. Uh, So this is actually really useful because we create all this content and we don't know how good it is, right? So you have these wonderful creative people who make say a TV commercial and they go, hey, dear uh, uh, customer, this is a great commercial because of A, B, and C, and the client doesn't know. You're like, I don't know, the creative guys love this, uh, mm-hmm. but should you have this music or that music? Should you use this version or that version? And so we're the sort of independent arbiters. Like, we'll, we'll just test what you have, and then we can quantify how well that works. And it turns out the same mechanisms that work for movies, for TV commercials, 
radio, also work for experiences in person. So we've done work now where customers are in stores and we measure their brain activity using wireless sensors. You can walk around with a little backpack and we get all this brain activity from you and we can tell you how immersive that experience is. And from the consumer perspective, I want to have a great experience when I walk into Target or Whole Foods or wherever I'm going. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to have like, ah, I don't want to come back here. <laughs> so when the experience is great, right. you know, buying more, you're more loyal. So it's better for the consumer and better for the business. So mm -hmm. it's a win-win. Again, there's no brainwashing, right? I can give you great customer service. I can smile. I can be happy that you're here. And if you don't like our product or it's too expensive, mm -hmm. I presume you're not going to shop here again. Right. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Um, unfortunately, we only have time for one more question. Um, Make it a good one. Yeah, well, so on this podcast, we always end with the same question, okay. um, which is sort of nebulous. But we ask you what your personal definition of success is and how you would advise college students to uh, define success for themselves. That's a great question. I have thought a little about this. Oh, and it's uh, actually in the end of my book. And so I'll use this one. You can, you can push back if you like, but it's, it's my definition. Um, you have learned that my brain is tiny and I have to simplify everything or I can't understand it. So I started thinking about you know, all the ways we go through life and how I can assess whether I'm, I'm having a positive or negative impact. So um, my goal is that for every interaction I have, I add a little more positive energy to the world. So I call that love, you can call it something else. So I call it the love plus, plus program. So every interaction I have, I wanna make sure someone's coming out and they feel better about themselves, I've helped them somehow. Um, so one way I do that is to try to finish every conversation with the word service. So I'll do it with you guys. I'm happy to be of service to you, to supervise your senior thesis, to talk to you about your getting a job, whatever that is. So I wanna be of service to people around me. And if you think about being of service to others, then they'll want to be of service to you too. Mm -hmm. And now we're in a community where we actually care about each other and help each other. And I think that makes the world just a little better person by person. So Absolutely. that ain't so bad. Oh, that, that's beautiful. Thank you so yeah. much for that. Um, well, so unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for no. today. Say it's Thank not so. Thank <laughs> you again, Professor Zach, so much for joining us. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry.